This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. My next guest for the morning has joined us in the studio. I say us because it's kind of me and you. And as it happens in this instance, Mark Wilson. Hello, Mark. How are you? Yeah, very good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Lovely to have you here. So you're directing uh, this production for Red Stitch Actors Theatre, Sweet Phoebe. It's a play by Michael Gow, best known for Away, which is one of those plays that high schools across the country stage. <laughs> it's become kind of a really established part of the uh, kind of Australian theatre canon. Sweet Phoebe, though, who's only, it's very rarely produced. I was looking at the kind of Oz stage database and it's, I think it's had only about 10 productions or so. It's had uh, very few professional productions, but it's been very popular with amateur theatre groups because it's a two-hander about, which is a comedy about a dog, which amateur groups apparently love. Okay. (laughs) So um, what's beyond its appeal to amateur theatre groups? What's its uh, appeal for you as a director? What made you think, yeah, I want to work on this show? Well, um, I, in terms of Michael Gow's work, I was very familiar with with the with the existence of it but i had not uh read a lot of it or seen a lot of it except away of course um which everybody seems to be aware of uh so when i was sent sweet phoebe i was very spurious um but then i read it and i i read it in 48 minutes this full-length play i just couldn't stop reading it and i couldn't breathe and and i just knew that i had to do it i mean the language was so extraordinary and it was so tight and so brilliantly structured that just as a piece of theatrical literature, I knew that I wanted to like, chew it up. Yeah. And what's uh, one of the things that intrigues me about it is, as you say, it starts... Out, well, it, it certainly starts out as a comedy about uh, a successful young couple who are pet-sitting, I guess you'd call yeah. it. They're looking after their friend's dog, initially a bit hesitant to do so, but then they, they soon begin to adore the dog, who then goes m- missing yes. and propels them into some kind of weird <laughs> twilight world. <laughs> yeah, and I think what's brilliant about it is that it um, it really balances this kind of comedy about and, and satire about this couple who think they have everything in control and then a dog makes it clear that they don't with um, this kind of larger project of um, getting these people out of their bubble and um, kind of there are these epic journeys that they each go on uh, when while looking for this dog and, um, and this kind of opens their eyes about some things and it, it certainly doesn't provide insight necessarily but it um it in some ways it it sends them on a physical odyssey in that they go to almost every single suburb in sydney to look for this dog um but because michael gow is such a brilliant writer it's also like this social odyssey as well and um from this wealthy ivory tower of theirs they're forced to uh, look over the fence and see how other people live which i think is um kind of a brilliant conceit. And when you say an epic journey, I'm assuming it's also very much a psychological journey for these characters. Totally, totally. And what's brilliant about this play is that it, it works as a relationship drama, but it also works as a, a kind of a sociological study and, a, and, a, and almost a tragedy as well, while also being very simply a comedy about a dog. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds kind of fun, I have to say. And on the... I'm, is it, what, just... Uh, what, uh, straight through, no interval? Yeah, yeah, we're 75 minutes, no interval, two actors, one set. 
it's 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 like all all this simple it's just so kind of elemental and so simple and so clear i think it's very greek actually not that it is in any way like a greek tragedy but uh it's actually just a comedy about a dog (laughs) so the fact that on one level it sounds like a very simple play so tell us what you've brought to it to to and how you're mining the depths of the of the text to to show that it's not just a simple comedy about a a couple and and a dog well it's it's really about engaging with Michael's text, which is so complex and so kind of sneaky that while for the first half you're watching a comedy about a dog, he's planting all of these seeds, um, which then grow into delicious things. Um, and his writing, it's, he, he actually almost writes it in verse. And um, one of his um, inspirations for writing it, uh, or the form in which he wrote it, was Ted Hughes's adaptation of Seneca's Oedipus. And so it's 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 fully loaded, you know, um, even though the form appears very simple. And because he's such a master of structure, um, the, the thing just kind of takes you and before you know it, you're, you're in loopy land. Now, uh, I've been looking at a couple of the reviews of, uh, of this production, which uh, is on now until the 3rd of March and what opened just last Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, and... Who was it? Oh, uh, Tim Byrne oh, yes. seems very taken by it. Yes, he liked it. Yes, so you do read your reviews. Uh, I, when I direct and when I produce, I, I read them, but when I, when I act in them, I don't read them till the end. Okay, I can understand that. Yeah, you don't want your own your acting to be influenced by... Yeah, I don't need a note from, <laughs> from a critic. Uh, so... Uh, Let's talk about the design aspects of it, for example, because that's something that kind of Tim uh, kind of talked about, the fact that um, it's uh, the set is uh, intimidating and nightmarish, huge slabs of black marble and angry red neon. It's a 90s minimalist hell, airless and subterranean, <laughs> uh, which is a given that the play, uh, what, premiered in the, in the 90s. 1994, yeah. Yeah, so tapping into that kind of sense of its period, but then at the same time kind of what creating a... T- almost like a, a tomb for the relationship of these yeah, characters. Yeah, somewhat, somewhat. And part of this is satirical because um, Helen, the character played by Olivia Montecciolo, uh, is, a, is an architect who's very into kind of 90s minimalism. And so we've kind of slashed that all over the stage. Um, but also it's, uh, it's, it's very... We've, we've kind of, rather than make it, giving them a very nice 90s apartment where we've, we've gone suburban gothic on its arse and... Um, have provided a, a yeah an amusing kind of term <laughs> for them to play with. I, at one point, I called the set um, the giant wedding cake of death. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had a lot of fun with design and um, beautiful sound and lights as well to to match uh, Laura's incredible set. Yeah. And uh, Lisa Meebus doing lighting, Laura Jean Hawkins doing the set design. Who's done? Uh, Dan Nixon. Oh, and, and Dan yeah. Nixon on doing the sound design. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a bit of a dream team. For you as a director, talk to us about uh, how you approach working with the designers on a show. Do you give detailed briefs at the start saying, here's my vision, here's what I want, go away and interpret that? How collaborative and open and, and kind of yeah, talk us through that process. Yeah, well, for me it's, it's like uh, absolutely open at and absolutely prescriptive at the same time. Um, when we got into tech, I realised that um, in one particular scene, Laura had given me uh, the exact image that was my first image that I gave to her. 
and I was like, oh, look, there it is. And she said, yes, Mark. <laughs> and so, yeah, and speaking with Laura, uh, with um, Lisa and Dan, uh, my first conversations with them was about rhythm rather than um, look or sound um, because the play has 21 scenes and uh, only two actors, so you've got to work out some way of propelling it forward. And um, so our conversations were very much about rhythm rather than tone or feeling or what have you. Um, and is that a rhythm that's also then uh, driven by the text and the... Totally, totally. Like, the text just flies. There's no full stops. Like, literally no punctuation. You just go. The whole, the whole show. <laughs> yeah, it's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful piece of construction and it was really important that we didn't get in the way of, of that text drive. Yeah. And what about your uh, talking to the actors about how to approach their characters as well, given that, this, as we say, this is a play that uh, begins as comedy, descends into, into uh, much more psychological terrain. It's uh, looking at socioeconomic disparity in some ways. It's mm-hmm. bringing these, as you said, bringing these people out from their ivory tower and kind of out into the western suburbs of Sydney and, and elsewhere. So it's it's kind of... And it's also in terms of its language playing with kind of uh, symbology, uh, sorry, symbolism. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, well, well. first of all, I cast two actors <laughs> who I really like to work with and who are great with text and super detailed, Livia Montecciolo and Marcus McKenzie. And um, both of them, quite importantly, uh, have spent time in Sydney. And Olivia grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney. And, um, and that was quite important for me that we had that kind of Sydney knowledge um, not that the play needs the audience to have it, but it was very useful for the actors to know what these suburbs were and things like that. Um, but, yeah, because I've worked with those two actors um, before, uh, it was really simple for us because we had a language established and we could move very quickly and therefore we could go to lots of different places. Um, and the big thing was finding the tone and the balance and... Um, at the beginning, we were we were like, oh wow, this this text is so open. There are so many possibilities. But very quickly, we found out that while that was very true, it was also incredibly specific. And that if we didn't find exactly the right scenario to go with each moment, then then it didn't quite sing. And um, and so yeah, it was it was about finding the situation and then finding the tone, but also getting out of the way of the text and just going. Like so much of this is just about go 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 next 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 next. Yeah, which has been a joy for them as well. If you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with Mark Wilson, who's the director of Sweet Phoebe, the current production at Red Stitch Actors Theatre over in St Kilda. Uh, And I'll give you all the booking dates and details uh, in a moment. Uh, As I said, Sweet Phoebe's a play by Michael Gow, much uh, less well-known than uh, some of his other... other uh, other plays, even live acts on stage, I, I suspect, kind of has mm. had a, a longer life than than Sweet Phoebe in some ways. Why do you think it is that uh, this play, of uh, unlike Away, unlike some of, of Gao's other plays, has not become kind of a more established part of the the, the main stage professional Australian theatre canon? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, that Kate Blanchett was in the first. Um, first production and then four years later she won an Oscar or whatever so so there's the Blanchett curse okay so people you, uh, are like oh no people will just compare yeah, whoever exactly, we cast exactly yeah yeah so in that so t- to kill that I cast Olivia Montecciolo who's very di- a very different actress from Blanchett so it's just, you don't think about that um and then another thing is that uh it blossomed so quickly in the amateur scene 
the amateurs loved it. And the other thing is that it's a very, very hard play in that um, it looks very simple, it looks very easy, but it is a difficult play. And if you see a bad production of it, um, uh, you would run for the hills. Uh, but you'll be pleased to know that this is a very good production. Well, <laughs> the reviews I've seen would seem to suggest so. Very, yeah. good, very good. So I'm interested, though, just to pick up that comment about, uh, again, the fact that it became so quickly loved by the amateur scene. Do you think then there's a, a kind of uh, a snobbery in the the professional sector they're going... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, um, you know, an, uh, if, if something is being done by one market... You know, to think like the main stage companies do, like they they operate as commercial theatres, and if if another market provides the same uh, product for cheaper, then our main stage companies aren't going to touch it. Makes sense. Mike Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, pleasure. I'm joined now by visual artist Simon Terrell, who uh, has uh, work Crowd Theory showing at the Centre for Contemporary Photography in George Street, Fitzroy, on now until the 31st of March, which, amongst other things, documents the or presents the behaviour and the movement of communities everywhere from Footscray to Thamesmead in the south of London. So, uh, welcome to Triple R, Simon. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Richard. Absolute pleasure. Now, I'm intrigued, before we, we start to talk in, in, in some detail about these works, looking at kind of your kind of your background and your history, you're one of the co-founders of Snuff Puppets, yeah. kind of the Melbourne company who is still based out in Footscray. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, a kind of, I guess it's a past life, but um, yeah, we had such fun. We moved, three of us, from Canberra in the early 90s and found ourselves in um, this massive sort of warehouse, inches thick in dust, and um, somehow set up snuff puppets. Um. <laughs> so how did you go from this kind of, uh, that kind of the beautiful chaos, which is the Snuffies' performances uh, of larger-than-life puppets? If people don't know the company's work, just do a quick Google as we're talking. You Snuff puppets now kind of, the, I know... Uh, entire bodies, body parts that come to life and animate and, and so much more. Um, but how did you go from that kind of visual performance to this photographic practice that you have now? Oh, um, with no planning whatsoever. Um, I don't know really, but somehow a couple of years of that kind of performing and then I just sort of decided I wanted to go to art school and I'd never drawn a picture or done anything like that and so I couldn't get in. But um, oh, I tried to put together a folio and ended up going to art school studying sculpture and then um, it just kind of came about. Um, I, I don't seem to manage to plan anything, but... Um, Photography is kind of like a convenience. It kind of works to do or something. It's not photography in particular, I don't think, that's the interest. It's more like stuff that happens in the world and then somehow a photograph can be, you know, a reasonable document to show something of that. Um, and so there's, a perf there's sort of elements of performance very much in these photographs. They are kind of documents of, you know, in some cases entire kind of tower blocks of residents performing um, and there is sort of elements of chaos to that they're pretty unstructured events so there's a sort of some of that spirit of snuff puppets I hope has kind of you know stuck 
Yeah, with I can, me. I can see the through line kind of in some <laughs> ways. Now, so with these, uh, with the, the photographs, with crowd theory, let's talk about the fact that you don't seem to like the word community so much as crowd. It's because a, a community, what, excludes people, whereas oh. crowd is inclusive? Yeah, yeah, it's along those lines, really. Just community is an odd word. Like we always say it and it always has this sort of, in inverted commas, you know, good about it. But, you know, sometimes they're quite strange things, aren't they? Whereas, you know, they're great if you're in, but not so great if you're not. But I just really like the idea of a crowd as this kind of, you know, it's a, it's just a proposition, but it's this idea of a social spaces that don't have boundaries or borders. They can, you know, there's, there's no, they're unstructured. They can, people can mix in any which way. Um, whether and you know that idea of who belongs and who doesn't belong and stuff like that. Um, uh, the sort of the word crowd just seems to um, be useful, more useful than the idea of community, because I really like it in these projects that each photograph is, you know, sort of documenting. I've kind of invited everyone and anyone whatsoever who's got an association with each site. And so these are, you know, all sorts of different groups and people. And so to say community wouldn't really work. Um, that would only be one section or something. Now, and so the sites you choose, let's uh, talk about how you choose them. Uh, because looking through some of the images, uh, there's one that I, <laughs> quite a few of them I look at and go, I know that place. <laughs> so such as the, uh, the at Footscray Community Arts Centre, kind of the riverbank uh, and the view beyond that, for example, and kind of people just doing their thing, kind of milling around, being themselves. Uh, the Port of Melbourne is another site that you've used uh, Braybrook, uh, uh, what a football oval out there. Yes. And Thamesmead, which uh, is weirdly familiar to me. I've never been there, but uh, some of A Clockwork Orange was filmed there yeah. That uh, and uh, the movie Beautiful Thing is set there and more recently, um, oh, uh, English TV show about uh, Asbo kids with superpowers. Misfits. Misfits is yeah. also set there. So I know the site. And so, again, looking at the photo, I was kind of like, okay, that sense of connection to a place. How do you choose a place when you decide to, to document its crowds? Uh, I sort of, oh, again, they just sort of fall into place because there's, I haven't ever, like, gone, oh, got to do one there. It's just been a kind of mix of luck and circumstance and then suddenly over time, I don't know, I guess I'm always kind of wandering around, wondering about places and stuff and Thamesmead, the last one that did, um, were just uh, actually I was hoping to do a project somewhere else in London and that just fell apart and somehow I just found myself at Thamesmead. But it seems like as soon as you, any place, it doesn't matter where, as soon as they sort of, you kind of start digging all of these other stories come up and, like, Thamesmead's a great one because there's all those things you mention and that's kind of like the... That's what the world knows of that place, especially the Clockwork Orange scene where he gets, you know, beaten and thrown into the lake. Um, but they're the public stories, I guess. And then there's this other layer to Thamesmead, um, you know, just of the people who are involved in the, the project um, and they, that kind of private... Their idea of that place and they're completely different, of course... Um, For people who don't know Thamesmead and don't know the, the, the kind of imagery which we've referenced to through it, the way it's depicted in film and TV, it's social housing in the south of London that was built, I think, in the 60s. It's all very brutalist and kind of tower blocks and walkways and, a, and an artificial lake kind of built on the, the what was the marshy 
shores of the Thames or something. So it's got a certain look that uh, looks great. But as you say, that that's the public face. What you're exploring is the people who live in that space. Yeah, and there's always a, a re- I love that kind of disconnect. Um, because the the two never match. And, of course, you know, your idea of you, you know, people love living there, but the rest of the world thinks that you're in some sort of dystopian set for um, the, a next zombie movie, um, <laughs> which is great. I kind of thought of Thamesmead as a bit like um, a kind of dark side of, you know, if Canberra, you know, in the future, <laughs> start when all of the sort of buildings start to decay and that lake, you know, um, fills up with, you know, rubbish and... Um, weeds and things, you know, we could have a Thamesmead here, but... Um... <laughs> so so you've, you find a location, kind of uh, perhaps just by drifting about the city and you find a place. The photographs you take show kind of the local people moving through that space. How do you find those people and, and what instructions do you give them? Are you choreographing these works or, or are you just standing back and letting people move through and around at will? Uh, they're not choreographed at all. So I just I, I just set a time, essentially, and just sort of... But it's it starts by just hanging around. I really just, you know, kind of call it site research, but <laughs> that really means just hanging around. And then just talking to people, asking questions. I often have like a, maybe I'll have a Bruegel painting or something and say, would you like to do something along the lines of this? And if people, you know, somehow, you know, respond to that, then it just sort of organically grows. And then when it comes to the time to do it, just sort of figure out, oh, yeah, let's do it on a Thursday afternoon in July or whatever. Um, then just set a time and place, let people know and set it up with lights, uh, a soundtrack, um, hopefully some catering or something like that, and just um, invite people to be along at that time and say the only instructions that – well, they're not instructions. The only things I say are this is kind of how it works – you know, there's one camera. Um, if you stand still, you'll be sharp. If you move on the spot, you'll blur. And if you walk, you'll be a ghost in the image. So there are people who are there but not there. Um, Which is a lovely evocation of <laughs> the history of the place in one in one image, the, the fact that people who are there who aren't there, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they're never, you know, nothing's complete in a sense. So they're not complete, you know, portraits of these places. But... Um, and then it's, it is really, it's just like an hour-long ritual. So to start before dusk and move through till, uh, uh, you know, the sun has set and just take a frame maybe every five minutes or something and make ten pictures, choose one, throw away the rest, and that becomes the thing. And it's weird having this show at CCP because I sort of hadn't really realised the extent I've pretty much been doing exactly the same thing for 14 years. <laughs> terrifying as that is. Um, but yeah. uh, it's not that terrifying. I've been doing this show for 14 years. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you, your use of the word ritual is interesting. Tell us about that. Kind of Because r- ritual suggests something that, I don't know, the, 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 the process is not automated, but uh, that you have a, I don't know, a a series of steps that you must follow. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess I sort of use ritual because nothing happens, <laughs> really. Like, people gather and they're sort of there and going, oh, yeah, okay, right, what's going to happen? And nothing essentially happens as such, but it just feels like a ritual because it's just a gathering and people sort of gather, mill about and 
often, you know, all sorts of odd things come about through that, just, you know, uh, inevitably. Um, but it just seems like it's a ritual because it does have a start and a finish and it is an hour long and I've sort of, in a way, it's like a set of rules or something and, you know, there will be this photograph, you know, taken whether you, you know, you want to, you know, um, you know, you choose how you represent yourself at that moment in any way you wish. Um, but they're, they're the, the sort of, yeah, the only structure around it and other than that. But there's something that sort of seems to happen that's similar to each one. They always start off as these really awkward things and there's always, you know, a bunch of people who are um, working on it, doing different parts and they're always like, oh, what's going on? This is a bit awkward, isn't it? And then it finds itself for a bit maybe after, you know, after half an hour or so and then it always seems to fall apart again. Um, but so I don't know if that's enough of <laughs> if I can get away with calling it a ritual. For that. Has that process changed uh, significantly over the the fourteen years that you've been taking these photographs, or is it has it remained the same? Um, I always try and change it, and um, I sort of failed to. So it's remained pretty much exactly the same. Um, yeah. Crowd theory is on at the centre for contemporary photography. There's um, ten of the images that you've made, big, large-scale paintings uh, on the walls at CCP, and also, uh, I believe, a, a new sculptural work. Oh yeah, um, there's a sculpture that's uh, I call Plato's Bench, but essentially it's just I've been hanging around. I was hoping to make a work in this place in Athens, which is called Plato's Academy Park, and it's this scruffy inner city park you wouldn't know if you walked through it but it's where Plato spoke um and set up the academy you know what is it 380 something BC um and it just seemed like a nice end point for this idea of you know one of the threads through the show is this idea of you know what is it to be public and um, those kind of public conversations, democracy, these sorts of things that we do. Civil society, civil discourse. Yeah, all of that. And, you know, Plato's a very contested character in Greece, especially after the Greek the crisis there. Um, but essentially all I've done is taken some photographs of a bench in this park, just a normal bench, and sort of uh, they became a 3D file... Um, that got turned into a sculpture. And so it's just a sort of um, corrupted version of a, a bench from this park um, just for that thought of, oh, yeah, here's a, here's a sort of enduring symbol of publicness and a bench somehow, benches. We can, they're sort of a weird public-private thing, the way you're sitting on a bench, um, the kind of, you know, conversations that you might have when you're sitting on a bench um, that can be quite, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, yeah, they can be quite private, but you're visible. You're you're in the world, so that just seemed a way to sort of put an end point to seeing the ten photographs and the ten projects together. Because it's the first time I've put them together, and um, the 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 whole point of it was really just to see what happens. Crowd Theory, Simon Terrell's work, is on at uh, the Centre for Contemporary Photography, Photography, 404 George Street, Fitzroy, uh, now showing until the 31st of March, ccp.org.au for more details. There's a a performance tonight in... The uh, it's, yeah, it, it might be a lecture, it might be a performance, but I think the best word is a duet. 
um, between with um, Ted Coles and Chantelle Faust, and they are, are exploring this idea, Noli Matandre, Touch Me Not, which is related to the idea of a crowd amongst other things, and they're making some use of this bench. Other than that, um, just have to wait and see, but yeah. it's six o'clock tonight. And then you're doing an artist talk on Saturday the 16th of February uh, at CCP from 12 to 2pm, uh, and then on the 28th of February, a crowd theory reunion featuring the Snuff Puppets. <laughs> yes. Um, well, we're trying to track down... Um, and had a little bit of success, but people who were in these uh, the Melbourne images, and you know some of that goes back fourteen years. So it's sort of I've spoken to a few people who were, like, who were in them then, and it's quite a long time ago now, weirdly. So it's kind of like reanimating f- characters from the photographs who will be walking around in front of them, and yeah, and snuff puppets. Lovely. We'll do a performance. So jump online for more details, ccp.org.au, the Centre for Contemporary Photography at 404 George Street, Fitzroy, which is where you can see the crowd theory photographs by Simon Terrell uh, and a sculpture. Simon, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Richard. Fiona Trigg is a curator at ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, and joins us to talk about kind of what is probably, I think it would be fair to say, Fiona, the most popular piece of video art ever made, certainly one of the most acclaimed. That's the claim that's being made for The Clock, for sure. Yeah. So The Clock is um, uh, a video work by uh, artist Christian Marclay, which is a, a kind of an editing together of how many different scenes and films and and images all up do you know um i don't have an exact number but it's around 12,000 individual titles have been drawn upon to make this work and it's a 24 hour long work which uh just shows images of clocks and the passing of time from all those different works and as you watch it kind of it is in sync with real time. So if you glance at your watch as, a, as I don't know, Gregory Peck glances at a clock on screen, mm-hmm. it will be the same time. Mm-hmm. Yes, Gregory Peck comes up a few <laughs> times. And the work is 24 hours long and it is functioning as a clock. So you can tell the time by the work. Um, but more than just images of clocks on screen, you do get lots of elements of stories from all the different films that have been used. So it's not as boring as it might sound just watching um, pictures of clocks. It's actually moments in films where time is kind of the focus. So it'll be a character racing to meet a train or waiting for a lover or, in the case of Gregory, <coughs> Gregory Peck, excuse me, um, sitting with his daughter Scout in the beautiful film um, where... Oh, I've forgotten that where he plays Atticus Finch, you know, yep. To Kill a Mockingbird, that's yep. the one. Um, and they're having a beautiful bedtime scene in the evening when she's looking at his watch and he's telling her how he's going to pass that on to her brother, but that his mother left, her mother left a beautiful necklace that will become hers one day and they have a big hug and everyone cries. So you have lots of little moments of really moving stories, um, but then they quickly fly by as um, other, other films, other moments come in to fill, to fill the time. And one of the things that it does as a, as a work, according to so many of the different reviews I've read about it, mm-hmm. is that it uh, 
it plays with your perception of time uh, in the, the way that in, uh, in a heist movie, as, a, as the clock is ticking down, for example, uh, time feels compressed and accelerated. At other times, it will stretch out time and make you aware of the passing of every second. It seems to be a, quite a profound work in that regard, that it encourages you not only to think about time and our perceptions of time, but also to think about mortality and everything else connected with the passage of time as well. Yes. Um, it's one of those beautiful artworks that has, um, on the face of it, a really simple concept, that it's um, a 24-hour work compiled of clips from films that reference time. Um, and there, there are many pleasures of just watching that unfold and seeing how the, how the artist has edited together all these clips that do follow the 24-hour passage of time. But as you say, <clears throat> it leaves a lot of space for you to bring your own interpretation to it. Uh, and that will depend on your own relationship to time and your own cinema viewing history. So you'll either be familiar with a lot of the clips or maybe not so many, and that kind of impacts on the way you feel about it. Um, you'll get lots of rushes of memories from films and actors and directors that you love and you'll be intrigued by little clips of films that you have no idea what that is. So you do have a kind of a memory overload, which for some people is kind of frustrating and for other people is deeply pleasurable and for other people it's a bit of both. So a lot of um, reviews of the clock will say, oh, I sat down and after a few minutes I was thinking, oh, this is dumb, this is boring, I can't stay. And then three hours later I had to tear myself away. So it's quite an addictive work um, because it's constantly um, inviting you to engage with a whole lot of different stories um, but then linking them together in this overarching concept of the passing of time. Now, there's a review from The Guardian that uh, talks about the fact that traditionally in art, the passing of time uh, uh, is a reminder of death. Uh, but the clock is not a downer, it's an upper, and that the longer you watch it, the more addictive it becomes. There are opportunities to watch the entire 24-hour kind of uh, extent kind of viewing of the clock. Yes. How avidly is that opportunity being taken up here in Melbourne? Well, every Thursday, so that includes today, we're open for 24 hours. So you can come from 10 o'clock on Thursday morning and stay all the way through till 5pm on Friday if you're so inclined. Um, the first Thursday night, we had quite a lot of people till midnight. Then people tend to trickle off as they have to catch trains or possibly even go to work the next day. Um, but we had a few people who stayed overnight. And then the second Thursday, we had more. And tonight, I'm sure we'll have even more. So we're open every Thursday of, of the run until um, the 10th of March. And other people are kind of allocating time to go and see mm -hmm. the clock. Uh, and it's one of the things I've noticed with video art in galleries. Most people will stop and look at a work for often only a few seconds and then move on. Mm. What I'm curious to know, uh, for example, uh, the Arts Hub reviewer who went to see it said that he decided to set himself two hours from 10.35 to to 12.35 mm -hmm. and just engage with it mm -hmm. for that time. Again, kind of with the audiences uh, that are viewing it, are people kind of becoming immersed in the work in the way they would a film or are they viewing it more the way a lot of people do, unfortunately, view video art, uh, dip in, dip out very quickly? We're finding people just want to sit there and stay and then they leave and then they want to come back again and catch another section of it. Um, it's in the big downstairs gallery, so um, we've set it up in this lovely, large, very comfortable room with a lot of um, white couches as uh, 
prescribed by the artist. So it's a very comfortable viewing experience. It's a really huge screen. It's got a fantastic sound mix and a fantastic sound system. So um, it's very easy to just settle in there and, and watch time kind of fly by. It, the, the film kind of picks you up and, and carries you along on this incredible river of cinematic um, memories and moments. And it's a little bit hard to leave sometimes. I like the, the, the idea that uh, people are, are having having to drag themselves away and then come back, mm-hmm. kind of like perhaps kind of after work, kind of return mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. dip back into the this kind of cinematic world that Christian Marclay has created. He, I believe he began his career as a DJ, so he started by mixing sound and is now renowned for mixing imagery. Yeah, he's always worked a lot with with music and audio. In the 80s, he was kind of living and working in New York and he did a lot of kind of DJ performance work. And he's also done a lot of work with actually cutting up LPs and sticking them back together and using them in kind of conceptual DJ performance pieces. Um, He's done a lot of video editing, but this is his major video work and it was completed in 2010. And since then, I think he's returned to a focus on audio. Okay, it's so it's almost as if he kind of like reached the pinnacle of, of yes. the, the video career and said, "My work here is done." Well, uh, he spent three years making the work. Um, um, editing was a really intense process, of course, to make a twenty-four hour work with so many different moments in it. Yes, so I think he can step away from video quite proudly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think uh, something like this could have been created before? the idea of the mash-up and, uh, the, and the cut-up had saturated popular culture? Well, no, he's very much working in that tradition um, and very much working with kind of found objects as his material. But interestingly, it was made before streaming was a real thing. So he had a team of researchers who used VHS tapes from a video rental shop in London and sort of sourced a lot of the material which he then compiled um, so it was. It's kind of quite an. It's almost an analog work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is fascinating, given that. Um, to, the, I was just thinking. Oh, hiring VHS tape, tape. Oh, that dates it. Yeah. Because kind of where are the kind of nobody? All the video uh, libraries are, are now gone. Sadly. Exactly. So yeah. the work kind of has its own life in time. And um, a lot of the films, the most recent films are from the kind of 2000s, so there's nothing post that. So it's kind of a snapshot of cinema up to that point in time. And also a snapshot of cinema history, because I imagine Mm. that some of the films uh, and the imagery from some of the films goes quite back to the very early days. Yeah, there are silent films in there as well, and films from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and the 2000s. The work is called The Clock, created by Christian Marclay, and it's showing at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, ACME, uh, until the 10th of March. It's open from 10am till 5pm uh, every day, and uh, on Thursdays, open 24 hours. If people want to attend the 24-hour sessions, or indeed any session, mm-hmm. do they need to even though, though do they need to book online? Or no, the work is free to enter at all times. Um, if it's very busy, you might have to wait a little while in a queue if the room is full, but um, we haven't found people having to wait very long. Um, so I think if you come along, you'll be able to get in and see it. But, yes, you're not able to book. It's just a first-come, 1st serve. OK. So uh, if you're really passionate, then uh, rock up next Thursday morning at 10am so you can experience all 24 hours of it. I imagine bring a thermos of coffee or something <laughs> that you may need it after midnight. Um, but otherwise, yeah, uh, you can dip in and out... At 
at your leisure, whether it's for 15 minutes or as many people I've spoken to have discovered, I'll just go for half an hour and three hours later they find themselves kind of exiting uh, as if in a dream. So, uh, as I said, uh, Christian Marclay's The Clock at uh, ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image at Federation Square in the heart of the city, on now until uh, the 10th of March. Um, and Fiona, are there any kind of often kind of there'll be associated events, floor talks, uh, conversations, that kind of thing? Anything similar? Uh, we had a, a performance by Lucy Guerin and her dancers on Sunday afternoon, but I'm sorry if people. Um didn't catch that on Sunday, they've missed that one. So, yes, just keep an eye on our website. There might be some more events coming up. So, www.acme.net.au to uh, keep an eye on what else is coming up. But, yes, the clock now showing until the 10th of March from 10am till 5pm daily. Fiona Trigg, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.